Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez-McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. We are in the studio right now, and if you look around, there's hummingbirds outside and trees all around. It's really beautiful, and there was a big tropical storm yesterday. We're basically in a spooky house in the country, Sarah. <laughs> let's let's be honest here. We are in a spooky house with the ghosts of Harvard past. That's true. Well, some people's spooky are other people's cozy. We're out in Western Mass, and we're taking the show on the road. We're taking the show on the road, but I think to understand this house, which I've posted a lot of pictures on social media so maybe people do understand this house there are pictures everywhere of sarah's family and the legacy of harvard there's a 1899 graduation picture and there's lots of old serious harvard alumni looking down at us that's in a right. very Eight, serious way that's right 1899 and that was my great-grandfather right class of 1899 in harvard so what do we have this week what's our case so this week we have Jason Bond who went to Columbia. This one is a sad one. I mean, they're all sad, but I think this is a sad one because in a lot of ways this one, this one really makes me mad because this one could have been prevented. So it could have been prevented. So let's get right to it. So at 2.31 a.m. May 24th of 2012, the Queens police received a desperate 911 call. For reasons unknown, they never responded, Laura. Two days later, after a well-being tip-off call, the police went to this apartment in Queens and discovered the bruised and battered body of a woman covered in bags of ice. This was Danielle Thomas. And how did this bright, beautiful executive end up murdered? Pretty quickly, it became evident that her Columbia University-educated Wall Street lawyer boyfriend, Jason Bond, was responsible for her death. And this is their story. So, Laura, this week we're covering Columbia University's ticking time bomb, Jason Bond. And I just want to remind our listeners that this is a true crime podcast. There are very brutal descriptions of violent murder and of domestic abuse. So, listener caution. So let's talk a little bit about Columbia, since we're Ivy League murders. Columbia University is New York's only Ivy League college, and it was founded in 1754. So, Laura, it was originally a pre-revolutionary college. So it was Tory, which means that it was sort of British-leaning. That's so interesting. I lived in New York City for 13 years, and I never knew that about Columbia. Yeah, it was called King's College. Right, not that I know? spent a lot of time hanging out on the Columbia okay, Well, you never know. With right, you. Right. <laughs> you never know with you. But. So it was called King's College, and it was actually like a Church of England. It was very steeped in British. This was pre-revolutionary time. So after the revolution, which of course we know was 1776, it then got co-opted by Alexander Hamilton. 
so interesting. Yeah, you know the reason why it's called Columbia? Because Columbia was an alternative name for America. They were trying to kind of come up, they were forming this country. Wow. And because of Columbus, one of the names that was kind of out there, like, hey, what do we name this crazy new country we just created? Right. America or Columbia. Fascinating. So they, yeah, so they named it Columbia because of that. Like a lot of our schools, the alumni from Columbia, just like the list goes on and on. But there are some interesting types. Yeah, I mean, my one of my favorites is Warren Buffett, who I just am such a fan of. Barack Obama. Oh, go Barack. I mean, I never knew. Where until, are you, Barack? <laughs> I never knew until you pointed it out that Lou Gehrig went there, which, you know, Baseball Hall of Famer, so many actors. And both FDR and Teddy Roosevelt also went to the law school at Columbia. We could do the whole podcast on the, oh, we on could, the alumni. Like, seriously, like Ed Harris, Sidney Poitier, you know. There's just so many people who went there, so many people who've gone on to do many prestigious things. Today we're here to talk about one of those graduates who didn't go on to prestigious things. He went on to throw it all away. The story of Jason... Bond and Danielle Thomas is just a sad one. And Jason did graduate from, got himself into Columbia University under the most unlikely circumstances. And then he made well with his life, but he kind of threw it all away. So let's go back to the beginning and look where it started. Jason Bond was born on January 29th, 1979 to Maureen O'Connor, who was an unwed mother and teenager. And his father was a drug addict. And Maureen, his mother never wanted to be a mother. Let's just face facts. She was a teenage mother. The teenage mother of two because she had two. He had a brother. And Jason and his brother, Chris, they just got shunted back and forth, right? Between the grandmother who was schizophrenic and the father who was abusive, drug abuser and abusive to the boys, both verbally, physically. What did he do to the boys? He would spike their juice with alcohol to get them to sleep. Pointed guns at them, kicked them. Jason was primarily brought up by initially by his grandma in his grandmother's care who I mean she was schizophrenic she had delusions the grandmother was incapable, incapable. of take, taking care of the and boys. then when Jason was nine his mother remarried and she shipped the kids off to live in a trailer park with their father and he was extremely abusive he was and the stepmother mind you who had married Jason's father found a list that Jason had written like 101 ways to kill my father. And at that point, Jason got kicked out. Jason would call his mother and say, help. Yeah, help me. This is awful. And she'd be like, oh, you know, not settled here yet, dear. Just can't take you on right now. And Can I just interject here that this really infuriates me because while he's living in a trailer park in Florida, she's living in Greenwich, Connecticut. Maureen O'Connor is building her life Building her career. She's basically said, I'm not going to be a mother. I'm going to completely focus on my career. And so she's living in Greenwich, Connecticut, where the median income is almost $700,000 a year. Yeah, this is like textbook abandonment issues right here right. For, for Jason. Right, I by mean, both yeah. his parents. Right. Nobody wants him. He was furious with his mom. With right? va- validly so. I mean, he's really just been, he, he wasn't wanted. He she wasn't. makes it very clear that her career is the choice and that she doesn't want to raise these children. Right. And so at 14, his father kicks him out. His mother's solution is to set up Jason and his brother and grandmother in their own apartment. 
and she's kind of paying off she's just right putting them off now the grandmother eventually dies and jason's living and his brother living on their own he's a 14 year old living on his own and neighbors eventually notice this kids coming and going there's no adult supervision and authorities are called in and maureen is charged with neglect and abandonment and she pleads guilty to these charges because she doesn't want any embarrassment or intrusion in her career she decides to relinquish her parental rights and make her children wards of the state because she basically doesn't want bad press she doesn't want bad press by this point she's the chief financial officer of scholastic books she has a big career she's living in million dollar home this is at the level where she's got the rights i think to harry potter hunger games there's this is like high level high level and i mean greenwich is one of the richest communities in america yeah this is like serious hedge fund money. When the Madoff incident happened, that, that like destroyed Greenwich. I think that all the hedge funds were like lo- were all lo- located in Greenwich. Oh, I, I didn't mean, know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think the top two or three that were actually working with Madoff were in Greenwich. And is- we should explain to the people who don't live in New York, it's like Greenwich is actually pretty close, commutable, commutable to New York City. Yeah. And it's a very like lovely, very you know, oh, beautiful. wealthy community, but it's commutable to New York City. Right, which yep. makes it so appealing that yep. you could work in Manhattan and live in this beautiful, it's almost like a little town, country town, very quaint and gorgeous. And So Laura, while Maureen is living in Greenwich and at the zenith of her career, Jason is being bounced around from group home to group home and really starting to engage in criminal behavior. He's starting to act out, Sarah, and I think at this point he makes this transition and decides he's no longer going to be a victim. And he's really been a victim his whole life in his family, and so he decides he's going to be the bully. So he goes from passive victim to active bully. And tragically, though, too, in one case when he was 14, he ended up kicking this 18-year-old girl who was pregnant and she lost the baby. So we do see these signs early on. I think it's interesting too that he will get back to his thing about kicking, about stomping, because it is relevant for the crime in question. I just thought of that. So yeah, and I mean we don't know, but it may you know may have been some have to do with the abuse he suffered. Jason Bond at this point in his life, teens, he's just going down a very very bad bad path. Right. I mean he's prison bound at this. Right. Point. He's headed for incarceration, yeah. and he winds up in this group home in Pleasantville, New York, and this really is where things turn around for him. Because he meets Dr. John Pacente. And John Pacente, I think, had a similar childhood to Jason. And he understands the trauma, I think, that Jason went through as a kid. And he recognizes, too, that Jason's really smart as well. So he kind of becomes a mentor to right. him. And he's kind of like your way up and out is through your intelligence, Jason. And with that yeah. encouragement and support, he's able to get into Columbia. And that's really an amazing feat Absolutely. to go from foster care to Columbia. And not only does he go to Columbia, he goes on to go to University of Florida Law School. Which is a difficult, that's difficult. a prestigious law school. 
and becomes a corporate attorney with clients like Goldman Sachs and Morgan, Morgan Stanley. Stanley. So he's like, he's like a corporate attorney on he's Wall Street. He's a corporate Street. attorney. And he winds up practicing down in Florida. And I went to college in Florida and I went to University of Miami. Go Canes and big, big football state. It was October of 2011 when Jason met vivacious young 27-year-old Danielle Thomas at a tailgating party for the Gators. Was it not? What? It was. And I went to University of Miami, which is actually the best football team in um, the country. Florida is uh, it's all about football. All and, co- ab- and college football. And college football. Yeah. And it's really a way of life. You just go to the games. Everyone goes to the games. When I lived in Miami, we went to all the games. See, I love football. I'm not a big sports person. Yeah, I love football. And too. I'm a big Pats fan. Like I'm one of those like crazy paint your face kind of Pat fans. Right. So I'm not that creepy. I uh, wouldn't paint my <laughs> face, but I <laughs> I love football games. The weather in Florida is so conducive to tailgating, and they're both big Gators fans, and these are diehard fans, and they meet at a tailgating party. And she is a very driven woman, and she meets him, and he's driven and smart and successful and, they and totally a corporate attorney. It. They totally hit it off. They just, it's kind of yeah. like love at first sight. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about Danielle and her background. So she was 27 when she met Jason. Yes. And so she was born in 1985 and she was actually from Kentucky, like pretty humble beginnings and stuff like that. And she had gone to the University of Florida and she'd graduated from the university with an MBA as well. And like 4.0 across the board. Oh yeah, she was an exception. Exceptional, she exceptional was just a smarty. Smart. Yeah. Not just that. I mean, she was involved in so many extracurricular things. She was doing internships. And she's just so cute. You see, she's like so fresh faced. She's wearing glasses. Yeah, she was. Like, she just seemed like such a hun, you know? Yeah, right. and just, just loved Disney. Yes, obsessed loved from Disney. a very, very young age. Absolutely. Really had initially thought of going to college in Boston and then made a choice to go to Florida really to be closer to Disney and wound up interning there and then getting her dream job in management once yes. she got her MBA. So she really made her passions happen. She did, but it seems like she was just full of life. Like she was kind of an adrenaline junkie. Oh yeah, she you know, she to... went skydiving. Have you ever been skydiving? I yet? haven't and I will never. <laughs> Life's went... dangerous enough. I, I... One time, and it was a total rush. So, yeah, she was um, she was just a lot of fun. And I think when she met him, she really felt like she met somebody with similar life goals and ambitions. And it was really they were dating only five months when he decided that his career would take off more in New York City. And she leaves her dream job and she gets a job at Weight Watchers in New York, and they move to Astoria, Queens together. And about a month into moving up to New York, that is really when I look at Jason Vaughn as a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde. I'd and, say a lot of a Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And I think about a month into moving in together, he, his Mr. Hyde starts to show. Oh, definitely. And he has really an uncontrollable jealousy that isn't logical. No, and... it's not. And in fact, it's since we're Ivy League murders, I have to bring up, this reminds me of Shakespeare's tale of Othello's, but we'll explain Bond's fixation and then I can elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. But 
So what happened May 24th of 2012? On May 24th, 2012, they get into a fight over some, he thinks she's talking to another guy, a phone number, and he beats her. And this long altercation occurs, and there are several 911 calls from neighbors urging the police to come. And do the police come, though, Laura? She's seen crawling in the hallway. And Sarah, I I married into a fourth-generation NYPD family, and I am such a supporter of law enforcement. And I am so angry about this because the police never come. There's multiple 911 calls. Multiple 911 calls and they never come. They never come. And she's being severely beaten. And neighbors are calling and neighbors are calling. And what happens is it's two weeks later she works up the courage to go into the local precinct. And she goes and she finds a detective Frawley of the Queen's police and she basically sums up the courage to make a report. He helps her get a restraining order, charges are filed, they even ask for bail, which he's released without bail, he's arrested. But she won't really press charges. The the restraining order is really useless as you'll hear in Detective Frawley's own words. So, Laura, Detective Frawley's credit, he did try to convince Danielle to leave Jason. He knew how dangerous he was. He saw the writing on the wall, and Detective Frawley will later say that this was kind of like kind of a career-ending case for him. But I think that the phenomenon of domestic violence is, I'm sure, with this sort of Jekyll and Hyde aspect that I think Jason had, I think they would have these incidents, horrible incidents, and not, you know, prior to this very serious attack in May, he had hit her before. And it's the typical kind of abusers, they attack, and then they're full of remorse and apologies, and that usual thing of like, it'll never happen again. I think a lot of his violence was due to jealousy. I think it had to do with possessiveness and jealousy and this idea that she was contacting ex-boyfriends. And it does, as I brought up before, it reminds me of like Shakespeare's Othello. Othello loved his wife Desdemona, but he was consumed. He got obsessed with this idea that she was with somebody else and he couldn't let it go. And Othello ends up with him killing this the woman that he loves. And I truly believe that Jason loved Danielle, and I think Danielle really did love Jason. But in my experience, Laura, I think one of the preconceived notions that we have about domestic violence is that somehow the victims in domestic violence are just weak and retiring, and, and that's not true at all. I've seen very, very strong women who are victims of domestic violence because they think, hey, I love him and I can fix him, or I'm strong enough to take his abuse. I've seen so many cases of that. And it is sad. And sometimes those cases end up in fatal results. It can seem like she just went right back. During, after this attack, she went to Dallas. She spent time with friends. She started opening up about the abuse. So she was taking some steps to break the silence. A lot of her domestic abuse sufferers keep it very quiet. She was starting to tell people. So I think she was working towards trying to 
break away from him. Yeah, but I think he was wearing her down. He and was, he, he was wearing it, her down, and that will ultimately be the fateful end, but is him wearing her down in, in drawing her back. And that's the tragedy of this case and of domestic violence. And it's really, I think, seems more about control to him than love. It's not logical. It has nothing to do with... I, and I think once they moved up to New York, he really had her in his control. Right, because it was yeah. his friend and his world. And she does stay away from him briefly after that attack, but she does get lulled back in. And this initial attack is horrible. I mean, he's stomping on her. Oh, yeah. He is punching her. When she reports it two weeks later, she is on crutches still and still has bruises from this attack. Oh, it yeah. Brutal, brutal, brutal attack that is not something that she can cover up. Okay, so Laura, let's talk about the night of the incident. Yes, yeah, so as we said that Jason had really worn Danielle down and she agrees to meet him and some work friends in Midtown Manhattan at Cafe Iguana for drinks. And she shows up, he's already been drinking and... And this was the night of June 23rd, correct? Right, this is the night of June 23rd. They get into an argument about her contacting an ex-boyfriend, I think. Right, as the, the norm, you know, he's his jealousy is illogical and irrational. And a fight ensues and he leaves the bar in a drunken huff. And she really just breaks down and opens up to his work friends about the abuse that she's been suffering. Like, it's she breaks down, like, crying, crying uncontrollably. Is, right. And several of them try to comfort her and even render aid. They, they offer a couch to stay on. They tell her to spend the night at a hotel. And then one of his female co-workers finally puts her phone number, which is a 508 number, into her phone and just in case she needs help. Right. And that number will become important later. They all really insist that she not go back to Jason's in their apartment, but apparently he had threatened her dog at an earlier time. So Danielle had a little schnauzer. I think she called them schnoozy. Schnoozy the schnauzer. Schnoozy the schnauzer. And so at one point, Jason had threatened to kill the dog, basically. Right. So Danielle felt it was necessary to go back to the apartment to get the dog. So she goes back to the apartment in the early hours of what would now be the 24th. So it's 2.15 a.m. Okay, so Danielle gets back. A fight ensues. 911 call comes in at 2.31 a.m. And out of respect for Danielle's family, we're not going to play that 911 call because it's really heart-wrenching. It is really heart-wrenching. And once again, that call goes unanswered by the Queen's police. This just breaks my heart. And again, I, I just, I don't understand what happened here that this just fell through the loops. I lived in New York City for a long time. I've called 911. Police always came immediately and, and nobody came. And Laura, I think on the tapes, you can hear they're arguing about this 508 number. And this 508 number is the number that Jason's co-worker provided to Danielle if she needed help. And he's kind of accusing her of like meeting some guy and what's this random number and what's this 508 number. This is 
you can hear it on the tapes. It's like he repeats it over and over and right. over again. Right, he, he does, and it's scary. And then at 3.20 a.m., a butt dial or, you know, an accidental call goes out to that 508 number. And a voice message is left, right. which is so jarring because it really is Danielle begging for her life at that point. It is, and, and it really shows that she could have been saved had the police come. Exactly. After the first 911 call, and they, that's what's so upsetting about the whole thing. Okay, so the next we see of Bond, he's caught on camera at the Rite Aid pharmacy, right? Right, and he's buying cleaning supplies and ice. Bags of ice. Bags of ice. Yep. That's really the, the next time we see of him, and then he takes her Blackberry, and for those of people pre-iPhone was what we all used. We used to use Blackberries. Sort of a texting device. Texting. A cell phone. And he starts to send out some messages. Pretending to be Danielle. Mm -hmm. He's sending it out to her contacts, like posing as Danielle. Right. And I think it's fairly clear at this point that he's not really trying to hide. He's just trying to buy himself a little time to figure out what to do. Basically, he her body is in the bathroom. Bathtub. At this point, and he puts bags of ice around and he sets up an air conditioner. I mean, a, a fan, fan to try. Because remember, this is summer in New York. It's hot. And he's trying to kind of preserve the body. And we don't think he was necessarily trying to flee. But as Laura said, he was trying to buy himself some time. And what he says is that he was deciding whether to kill himself or, or you know, what to do. But he basically flees and he goes off. He contacts an ex-girlfriend and he basically confesses. And then he emails her mother. And we are going to read you that email because I think it's very telling. So this is Jason Bond's email to his mother, and it's dated Monday, June 25th at 2057, <laughs> which is what, eight? It's almost nine o'clock, right? So it says, the subject is regarding your Bobby Van Park Avenue, the original reservation change. They were supposed to go out to dinner. So essentially, he starts out apologizing to his mother for missing the dinner. He says, Dear Mom, I sincerely apologize for missing our dinner this evening. Additionally, I no longer have access to my phone. In fact, I am or will be in a lot of trouble. And as a result, I am currently on the run. I've worked hard to get my life in order, but my past unresolved psychological and emotional issues have come back to haunt me. I'll make this brief and to the point. There was an accident on Saturday night. Danny and I got into an argument at an event a friend of mine was hosting. I went home drunk and she stayed out. When Danny got home, she woke me from my drunken coma and the fight continued. It got physical, but I don't remember anything. I completely blacked out. I woke up the next morning to find her unconscious and not breathing. I panicked and fled the city. I need your help. I'm begging you to please retain an attorney for me as soon as possible. I can't use the internet long as I'm sure law enforcement can trace IP addresses. So I'll wrap up for now. I will follow up with you tomorrow once I've had an opportunity to purchase a disposable prepaid phone. I haven't stopped crying or started eating. I was going to propose to Danny. I have thought about taking my life many times. It still may come to that. Know that I love you dearly, and I am so sorry for all the trouble I have caused. Your firstborn. And she wrote back a one-line <laughs> email back. It says, I will get you a lawyer. This is from his mom. You have to turn yourself in. <laughs> wow. It's, it's astonishing. 
So sometime after he writes that email to his mother, he also tips off the Queen's police and basically tells them, hey, look, do a well-being check at his apartment. So when the police respond, Detective Frawley finds the body of a woman in a bathtub covered in bags of ice with a fan on her and he recognizes her. And she also has a note and it says, I'm sorry, it was an accident. Yep. And so he finds Danielle's body in the bathtub. He knows immediately that it's homicide. Yes. He finds the restraining order next to some flowers kind of close to the body. And he knows what's happened. You know, he knows that Jason Bond has killed Danielle. Right. And they immediately start looking for Jason Bond. The APB goes out. They start looking for him. And obviously they, they aren't looking for any other suspects at that time. I mentioned earlier that this was a career-ending case for Frawley. And he does retire after this case. I think the fact that he couldn't save her just really ate away at him. Yes, and I think the missteps that the Queen's police had had fallen through the cracks, and it was fatal for for Danielle. But in any case, so his mother, Maureen O'Connor, true to her word, she does get an attorney. Todd Greenberg. Todd Greenberg, and they meet for dinner in White Plains with Jason, and at that point, Jason is arrested. Right, he turns himself in, and he's taken into custody. Yeah. Going to trial, and I mean, there's no dispute about whether he did it. He admits to having done it, and this really becomes a trial about the level and degree of guilt. This becomes a trial about whether this is first-degree murder or it's a manslaughter case. And true to form, Laura and I will probably Laura will take a little bit more of the prosecution's stance on this and I may take the um, the defense's stance on this and so that's the defense is led by Todd Greenberg and the prosecution is Patrick O'Connor. Essentially the prosecution has a slam dunk case here. There's no disputing that Jason Bond did this. The only dispute is whether it's first-degree murder or manslaughter. Right. I mean, there's multiple confessions. They're able to bring in past girlfriends, show previous abuse. So it's really an uphill battle for the defense. And they make what I would say a very interesting choice and bring in... Dr. Alexander Sasha Barty. Yes, exactly. So, who is a kind of an interesting choice for an expert witness. It, well, that's true. Uh, they so Barty is a psychiatrist, and he specializes, or the main thrust of the defense is is something called IED, and IED stands for intermittent explosive disorder, and. It's no coincidence in my mind that it that IED also means, you know, an explosive device, basically. But it's sort of the psychological equivalent of this explosive device. So I have to tell you, the cynic in me, when I first started researching IED, said, oh, well, rage. You know, everyone's got rage. What is this? But my understanding of, of IED is it is something that the person who has IED cannot control their rageful episodes. There doesn't even have to be a reason for their rageful episodes. And it is intermittent, meaning that it could be, you could go once a month and have this rageful or every six months. I think the real distinction, and this is something I'd be curious about whether the defense brought out, is whether Jason, he was diagnosed with this 
My question, though, is if he couldn't control it, how did he hold down a, a lawyer's job in Wall Street? How did he have clients like Goldman Sachs? I'm not sure if they ever really addressed that in, in the defense. I think that would have been persuasive for a jury to see him out of control at other points in other contexts of his life. Right, and what I think we see here is we really only see the rage with women. Barty really does connect that to the abandonment issues that he experiences had experienced from his mother, but it does seem to be isolated to his relationships with women, his rage. Now, I just want to mention that Dr. Barty is really kind of a Hollywood choice for uh, an expert witness, which is why I found it interesting, because he was a co-producer on the movie Side Effects with Catherine Zeta-Jones, and I think it's Hugh Grant, which we're actually going to watch tonight. And um, I've seen it. I suggest everyone see it and you'll then understand why he's a very uh, interesting choice. And he's also a consultant on Law & Order. So he's kind of a Hollywood type consultant. This was a very expensive defense, which, by the way, was paid for by Maureen O'Connor. True to form, she showed up financially for Jason. She did not show up in body. She did not show up. Never in showed person. up one day of the trial. Yeah. So, but she did pay for this very fancy, expensive defense. I'm on the fence about the IED. I would need to know. I would like to look at the trial transcripts, Laura, and really dig down as to whether they could show other instances in which Jason really lost his temper. I don't think he was in full command of his temper. I believe his childhood was very fracturing, very traumatic. I do think there are repercussions from that. However, I think that you can label anything and kind of call it a syndrome. And I'm a little bit leery of that. And with IED, I think you'd have to show that he was out of control in other contexts in his life. I mean, you can call this whatever you want. I think if Jason got out of prison and had a relationship with another woman, the same thing would happen. I believe so too. I think he's he was a he was a time bomb. He was a he was like a loaded gun, ready to go off. Absolutely. He went off, and he would go off again. So we can call it whatever we want to take away his personal responsibility. But the the fact of the matter is, is that he's not safe for society. No, he's not safe for. Mm -hmm people to be around and he shouldn't be around society and I think that he clearly knew that he could have killed her he almost killed her before he was arrested so to think you know that there was no premeditation here or that he didn't know that he had the ability to kill her I think probably poor Danielle got sideswiped I think she probably just did not realize she was I think she was just such a kind sweet person that I, I think she really did want to fix him and the part of the reason for not she knew that he had been abandoned in his life and I don't think she wanted to abandon him but the tragedy is is through his jealousy and through his rage he could not I don't think he could control his rage and that denial becomes a sickness in itself mm -hmm. you know as the victim you become sick in that abusive relationship and for whatever reason you, you convince yourself that it's gonna it's, get it's gonna better be he's gonna change right he's he's a good guy I know the good side of him I'm gonna boy I'm gonna really work hard on my relationship and make him right right but he and, was he was a know. he was a ticking time he off. was he and was. he was a ticking time bomb. And I, I think you're right. If it hadn't been Danielle, it would have been somebody else. And I think if, if he got out of prison, 
it will be the next I don't think he has the capacity to deal with women in any way he doesn't have the coping skills and I don't think that there's any self-awareness I I agree but I there is a part of me that my heart does go out for him as well oh, I, because yeah, I, I, I think too. he was a sweet innocent child at some point and he just got broken along the way a lot of my anger goes towards his mother because i think he he really i mean she threw him away and this was really the end result but his father as and well his father and, as well know, his, I, yeah. grand, his grandmother was not you're capable. right you're right he to had, say that to say he had the only adult figure he had in his life was the the doctor pacente which came i along think and, a little and, bit too late maybe uh, to, to save to save his soul and and i think the lesson is a little bit of love a little bit of tolerance and a little bit of encouragement goes so far yes and you know let just the jury didn't buy it two days they deliberated and they found him guilty of first degree murder and he was sent away for life and it may be in this case that his privilege or his sort of supposed privilege his defense attorney and his expert witness and it's really super he had this sort of cloak of privilege and I think juries also kind of look at it and go like, uh-uh-uh, look what you did to her. And in some ways, it didn't help him. Oh, okay. yeah. I think it the yeah, may Street, have been a disadvantage. I'm the, I'm the Wall Street lawyer. Well, that I went to Columbia. Well, I don't think it helps him in some ways with a jury. Right, and Danielle's mother and grandmother made very strong victim statements at his sentencing hearing and, you know, expressed how their lives will never be the same. And the sad, a sad little side note that we want to leave you with, with this case. So Danielle's mother, when she was originally going to meet Maureen O'Connor, had bought a dress for that occasion. They came from pretty humble means. They came from Kentucky. And so so Danielle's mom had bought this dress to meet Maureen in Greenwich at the, in the million dollar house. I'm sure to him. Press her and look yeah. her best, and, and then and then she wore that dress to Danielle's funeral, and yeah, that just breaks my heart. It totally breaks my heart. We also want to say that her dog Snoozy Snoozy <laughs> is 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 with the family friend and 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 living on and and happy and healthy because yeah. she really loved she loved Snoozy. Yeah, we just hope anybody you know who knows anyone in a domestic violence situation gets help because this is and in in these situations are especially bad in in these COVID times where people are trapped in places in bad situations. So if you in financial difficulties and in financial difficulties and stuck in ba- in really bad situations, and we just urge you to to be conscious of it with neighbors, be conscious of it, and and get help if you're in a, in an abusive situation yes get help and thank you for for listening to us for another week yes absolutely well thanks everyone for listening to us again this week and we have something really exciting for next week and just want to thank a few people again this week our number one super fan and my makeup consultant grace who's also working on a special project for us which we're keeping under wraps for now and noelle from the quite unusual podcast who i called nicole last week (laughs) Not that Nicole isn't fabulous, but Noelle is really like my mentor and I felt really embarrassed and she's really, really amazing and helps me all the time. And um, we have actually something really exciting right coming up, Sarah, with Amy and Megan from Women in Crime. And we're going to be talking more about that in the upcoming weeks. We won't get into too much now, but we're going to be so check them out for sure. They're a really great podcast. Yeah, and it's called Women in Crime and both Laura and I are binging we're binging. Oh my God, super binge worthy that show. And I wanted to just do a shout out for Rob Jones. Uh, I, I spoke to Rob a couple of times and actually he interviewed me on his 
fantastic show called Cigar Talk. And Rob's from Texas, and I'll tell you, it's just, we had the best conversation, so I really loved being on his show. So check out his podcast, Cigar Talk. Uh, please check out his interview with me. Um, and that was, uh, you know, and, and as always, we got to thank Christy Wagner, who's our fantastic researcher, and, and Russell Jarvis, who is our music man. Music man, yes, and our, and our great pal. If you'd like to support us, please hit the subscribe button, give us five stars, and share it with your friends and on social media. We also have a Patreon page under Ivy League Murders. So please hold on for a trailer for a very special podcast called Crimes and Consequences. These are our friends, Talia and Tanya, and uh, they really get into the details of lesser known cases. Uh, they're both attorneys and you know, Laura, it's Laura and I were, we're binging. So enjoy. Hi everyone. I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we're two attorneys that really like to dive into the details of true crime cases, which is why we created Crimes and Consequences, our own true crime podcast, in our podcast, we really want to know the details of a case. So it's really important to us to try to get transcripts and audio or video recordings when we can. In addition, we don't really want to just rehash cases you've always heard. Of course, there's a place for the really famous cases. But it's also interesting to learn about true crime stories that you've never heard before. To give you just a little feel for how our podcast goes, here's a snippet from episode 34 called Closed Casket. Later on that same day at 3.08 p.m., the Smith residence received another phone call from the kidnapper. Here's part of that phone call. 4.58 a.m., Saturday the 1st of June. Okay, Saturday the 1st of June. Became one so. Became one so. What does that mean? No questions now, please. Do not kill my daughter, please. I mean, please. We love and miss y'all. So if you're like Tanya and I and you want to know the gritty details of the true crime case, listen to Crimes and Consequences, a hardcore true crime podcast. Mm-hmm.